Thank you, Dominique, for reading, and uh, Kirby, thank you for leading. It's so wonderful to come Sunday after Sunday and being lifted high as we sing great and glorious truths together. Uh, truly, as Paul said to the Ephesians, we sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs making melody in our heart, and uh, we get to see and hear one another, and that is actually a means of grace, uh, which lifts our hearts um, up to the Savior. Well, before we jump into our text this morning, I think it is uh, helpful to maybe uh, step back, maybe get a bird's eye view of Matthew. I'm not going to cover the whole book, don't worry. Uh, but maybe step back and, and put some things in context. And, and that's why I had uh, Pastor Chris read from Matthew 5 to redirect us and to the teaching, main teaching section of Jesus, because what we saw taught in Matthew chapter 5 and what is known as the Sermon on the Mount is now being lived out. In other words, we, we see what it looks like to turn the other cheek as we watch Jesus. We see what it looks like to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you. We see the teaching ministry of Jesus come to life as Jesus goes to the cross. And in particular, I want to remind us of the truth in the Beatitudes where Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It was rather an anomaly and a phrase that, that probably makes us wonder, what in the world does that mean? Well, this text enlightens us, shows us what it means to be persecuted and to be among the blessed of God. And what we see in that phrase, and we're reminded as we follow Christ and his journey to the cross, is that the people of God will suffer persecution on account of Jesus. As the rest of the gospel has shown us, as will culminate in the events of the cross, following Jesus means that in some sense you will be treated like Jesus. Maybe you're here today and, and you're just kind of scoping out Christianity. Uh, the Bible does not give us this uh, unrealistic view of the world. It does not say, come to Jesus and, and everything just turns to roses. No, there's great joy in coming to Christ. There's great joy in knowing that your sins have been uh, forgiven, that your guilt has been taken away, that your shame is covered in Christ. But our hope is set in glory to, to come. But we are following a Savior who went to the cross. And he calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our own cross and follow him. And so we too must do that. As elsewhere, the scripture reminds us that it has been granted to us for the sake of Christ that we should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We've, called, we've been called to believe in Jesus, and we've been called to suffer for Jesus. Have you ever wondered how so many Christians are able to suffer in the name of Christ? How they're able to almost willingly give their lives for the name of Christ. I, I think of missionaries. How is it that, that there are Christians who, who will li willingly sell all to give all? Who'll say, I'm going to uproot my life, uproot my family. I'm going to change the trajectory of my life to go to a, a, a far and distant land to give people this good news, and I know I may die. Has that ever baffled you? Has that ever made you wonder, how, how are people able to do that? Or, or even those stories uh, of, of martyrs, those who are under maybe persecution, uh, Christians in China, Christians in North Korea. We, we think of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. How is it that they, they stand firm? How is it that they, they don't give up? How is it that they would die for Christ. I think for most of us, most of our concerns is to take the path of least resistance, right? What's going to be the path that, that will 
secure the most ease for me? What's the path that will allow me to avoid suffering at all costs? But part of what Jesus wants us to learn, not only from the Sermon on the Mount, but as we watch his life, as we watch it culminate in the events of the cross, he wants us to learn and willingly embrace the fact that following him is the road to the cross. And that we are called to yield our wills to his. We're called to yield our wills to the Father's and grow confident that his purposes will be accomplished through our suffering, even when we're persecuted. If you were with us last week, what we saw was a prayer meeting led by Jesus. <laughs> Jesus took his disciples to the garden, Gethsemane, and they are, he's, he's there, pray with me. Will you pray with me? Keep watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Well, Jesus is the only one who made it through the prayer meeting. One had other plans, as we'll see, and the other 11 slept. The other 11 slept. And now in this moment, as we are uh, in this text, in beginning in verse 47, persecution is about to come, and there's only one who's ready for it. The rest don't know what to do. What's persecution? Well, persecution could probably be defined in several ways, but this is how I, I think of it. <clears throat> persecution is a particular suffering inflicted by the world because we follow Jesus. Now, that suffering can take various forms, but it is a suffering that comes to us by the world because we follow Jesus. Now, sometimes people inflict suffering on us. It has nothing to do with our following Jesus. They're just mean people. <laughs> That's not necessarily persecution. But I want us to see here, this is persecution in this text. Not only does the Scripture call us to embrace it, but to see it as a sign of our blessedness in the kingdom. That's what I want you to say. That's blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This morning, as we will see Jesus betrayed, delivered over for crucifixion, guess what we don't see? We don't see a man who's fearful, timid, unsure, panicked. No, we see a man who's utterly convinced of the will of God. A man who's utterly convinced of God's will for him that he will drink this cup of suffering. And he walks and embraces it. Jesus is in sharp contrast to the disciples who, by the way, are not convinced that this is God's will. They aren't. They've been fighting it all the whole way. You remember Jesus in Matthew 16 tells Peter, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter, you're going to be integral. You're going to be this main pebble stone that I'm going to build my kingdom upon. Well, let me let you know that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and handed over to be crucified. And Peter says, may it never be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You set your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. The whole time this story has been trying to reorient our minds away from what Peter's doing and to think like Jesus thinks. In Christ, we see how to face persecution for righteousness' sake. That's what we're going to see today. We have a sharp contrast. There's a wrong way to respond to this, and then there's to follow Jesus. And so this morning, I want us to look to Jesus, and I want us to gain confidence. Now, persecution's foreign to us, right? There's a sense in which this, this just isn't going to land and probably isn't, oh, man, that's the nugget that I needed uh, this week as I, you know, I try to homeschool my kids. You know, that, that's not going to be persecution for you uh, in your home or, or, or whatever challenges you may have. Now, there can be persecution in your workplace, and I hope maybe that will encourage you, but we must be prepared because if we aren't prepared now, we won't be prepared then. And so this does matter. 
And so this morning, I want us to look to Jesus and gain confidence in God's will so that we can face persecution, even death, my friends, even death, knowing that God's kingdom purposes are being accomplished. And with such confidence, this will allow us to do what Jesus commands us in Matthew chapter 5, love your enemies. Love your enemies. It's only when you have this mindset that you can love your enemies. That's our first point. Love your enemies. Now, I think I'd like, we'd all like to say, yeah, yeah, we love our enemies. We, we like that. Yes, that's a good virtue that we want, to, we want to cultivate and we want to have. But in this moment that Jesus faces, imagine you in this moment in the moment of betrayal and harm, I think our emotions get the best of us, don't they? It's one thing to love a general enemy. I think we do a good job. We want to reach people who don't know Christ with the gospel. We want to reach Muslims for Christ. We want to reach Hindus. We want to reach the, the, the secular, the atheists. We want to reach these. And we know of the persecution that's generally happening out there, particularly in nations that are not like our own. And it's easy to love them, to pray for them. It's a whole nother ball game when this becomes a specific enemy and it's personally against you. Everything changes, right? And yet Jesus comes out of his prayer time from Gethsemane with the Father and he faces this trial of betrayal with confidence. We see here in verses 45 through 46, then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus is speaking, and while he is speaking and telling his disciples it's time to go, the trial is here, suffering is coming. In fact, it's going to come by means that you did not expect. My betrayer's here. And while he's speaking, Judas arrives in our text, right? And the significance of the harm just gets heightened here, doesn't it? There's nothing like betrayal. There's nothing like the knife that comes from the one you least expect. And that's exactly what happens. Now, Jesus is in the know. In fact, that, that might be more pressure on us to love our enemies if we knew when it was coming. But the disciples don't know. And this is, in much sense, a betrayal against them as it is against Jesus. And the significance here is heightened. As, as Matthew reminds us in verse 47, and Judas came, one of the twelve. One of us, Matthew's saying. One of our friends. One of our teammates. One we, we, never, we never saw coming. When, when Jesus said that one of you would betray him, we were all looking like, who in the world could this possibly be? And it was Judas, one of us. Judas, who's once a disciple, is now a traitor. And it's a reminder there will be those among us who will claim to be disciples, and then when the pressure changes, when we don't like the will of God, where this is going, we'll, we'll side with the world. Now as a traitor, he's joined the crowd, and notice this crowd, they come with swords and clubs, and, and who are they sent from? Uh, these are, these are the, the bad guys that we've been seeing through the whole time, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. All along, this one who is with us is now join the world with a mob coming to take our Savior. It's in moments like these that we are watching as Judas betrays Jesus that we need to be reminded that these moments, though they are shocking to us when they happen, they're actually revealing of what has always been true. 
These moments of betrayal are revealing of what was in that person's heart all along. It's what Jesus has been warning us all along, that eventually who you are on the inside, it will come out. It says John writes to the church who apparently was having difficulty betrayers in their midst. And he writes in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, if they were truly a part of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. Why? That it might become plain that they are not of us. Nevertheless, it still hurts. It still hurts. And as we see here, this betrayal was planned, right? In fact, Jesus had given the mob a sign. We see in verse 48, he says, the one that I kiss, that'll be a good, that'll be a good plan. The one that I kiss, that's him. Get him. And you might be wondering, why, why, did, why does he have to tell them? Don't they know who Jesus is? Well, it's dark. You know, we're used to lamps and, you know, I walk in my neighborhood and there's lamps along the way that light up the path. There's no lamps. This is night. They don't have iPhones with little, you know, uh, flashlight feature. You know, they don't have that. So there's got to be some way that they go after them. And maybe Judas has told them, hey, you're going to have to watch out. There's one guy who, who kind of can fly off the handle. So you need to make sure. Okay? Make sure you grab the right guy. Okay? And so Jesus, or Judas, excuse me, he has the gall. Just imagine this. Imagine if you're in Jesus' spot and you see this person, your friend, walk up to you. Perhaps, I guess he's smiling. I loved how Dominique read and she said, greetings, Rabbi. All fake. A veneer. Greetings. So good to see you, brother. And a brace and, and a kiss. Now, my kids are probably like, what? why is Judas kissing Jesus? You know, in other cultures, there's, that's a way of greeting. Probably been on the cheek or maybe the forehead. It's a sign of endearment. And, and, and the word here is that he kissed him with affection. This was a, a, a strong embrace. A hug that, that was to communicate, man, they're, they're friends. And yet we know this is all a scheme, right? Just as David writes of the agony of betrayal from a friend, so no doubt Jesus experiences the same. Psalm 55, 12 says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it, right? It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you. A man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. If and when such hurt comes from a so-called friend, what often happens with us? RPM meter, right? Your heart inflames. At least I know mine does. There's no way, I think many of us say, I'm going to let him knowing what's going on, act like you're my friend. While you come in for a kiss, I might come in for a right-hander, right? You know, that, that's what we probably would respond. No way! We'd be tempted to give them a piece of our mind. No, no way. I know what you're here to do, you jerk. You better not be bringing those lips around here. I'll rip them off. I don't know, Will. We're not going to tolerate that. And there's a sense in which if we're watching and our culture says, that's right, you don't, you don't take that. But Jesus has already told us the way. This text here prepares us for such things, and Jesus endures the wounds of betrayal by a friend. And we must come to texts like these. If one were to turn against us and join the world, 
This is probably often happens as persecution amps up. We saw that even as Jesus says, as lawlessness increases, the love of many grow cold, that many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. When the, when the cultural uh, pressures amp up uh, and it's too costly to, to stay in the group any longer, that's when betrayal usually happens. And this is certainly what happens in many cases among our brothers and sisters uh, where persecution is a real thing and they, they are captured and in the moment, well, guess what? Um, if, you'll, if you'll spare me, I'll tell you where the rest are. And Jesus now walks this line and he shows us how to be prepared for such situations, how to pray. Lord, give us the strength. And notice that he's able to do this because he spent much time with the Father. And as he asks, is it possible that this cup may pass, he grows and he, and, he, and, he, and he comes under the Father's will and he says, your will be done. And he arises strengthened in the Father's will. And so when this comes, he's prepared. Notice that while Judas is pretending to greet him as a friend, Jesus actually treats him as a friend. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Do what you came to do. Now, some of you may have other translations that has this as a question. What, what are you here to do? Or you might even have a little footnote. Um, this is actually a really tough text to uh, translate. It's, it's, friend, what do? <laughs> that, that's what we got in the Greek. But I think the overall context makes it clear. Whether it poses a question or whether it's a statement here, there's a sense in which Jesus means no harm to Judas. Friend, what are you here for? Friend, do what you got to do. We already saw Jesus, Jesus tell him that, if you're familiar with the Gospels. And, and we know that just hours earlier, Jesus had washed his feet. Knowing that all these things were going to happen. Jesus' words are filled with affection, aren't they? His words are true. His words are genuine. Come out of a deep love for Judas, whereas Judas' words were filled with contempt. Jesus loved him, even when he knew Judas hated him. Right? Nevertheless, though, Judas thinks he has control. Hey, I got a plan here. This thing's going to work. Notice it's not until Jesus actually speaks that anything can happen. It's after he says, come, do what you came to do, then. Then and only then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Despite appearances here, Jesus is under control right? For no one takes his life from him. No, he willingly lays down his life, which, which makes this even more baffling to us. If we were in control, we wouldn't willingly lay down our life, right? Yet, he's convinced of the Father's will for him to die. And so he's able to do it. And he who has the power to lay down his life or not, when he does, how much more should we? Convinced of the Father's will. This whole passion event from beginning to end, guess what? It's a picture of Jesus loving his enemies. Jesus never calls us to do something he himself has not perfectly exemplified in his own life. Never. And how can he do this? Because Peter is about to go bonkers in just a minute because this is complete insanity. How is Jesus able to do this? Why, he's confident in the will of God and his suffering. And so it is for us. When we've spent much time with the Father, meditating on his word, meditating on texts like this that we are doing right now, it is in this way that we too will grow to learn and to love and to embrace and find confidence in the will of God, even in the face of persecution. And so this leads us to our second point. When we have such confidence, we too can lay down our sword. 
When we are convinced of the Father's will for us and his church and suffering as we are following the path of our Savior, we can lay down our sword. Jesus here is willingly laying down himself into the mob's hand. He's giving himself over. But one zealous disciple has other plans, right? He thinks he's going to be the hero. <laughs> and he comes out and he comes a swinging, right? And he strikes, we see here. Verse 52, or excuse me, 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. I don't know if Peter just has bad aim or if the, if the servant just has great reflexes and, and it just, in that ear. I don't know how it worked. Nevertheless, he got his ear. If you're familiar with the story, you know who this disciple is. I've already kind of even uh, alluded to it. It's Peter, right? But what's interesting is that none of the synoptic gospel, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mention his name. It's John's gospel that gives us this insight. All we see here is one of the disciples, or one of those who were with Jesus. The reason we don't have his name here isn't because they're trying to cover for Peter. It's that we should see ourselves in Peter. We're ones who are with Jesus, right? And we have the tendency to go into aggression mode. What is Peter doing? I see you got swords. I'll match it. I see what the world is coming, the weapons of aggression by which they are now coming to persecute us. And Peter thinks, I'll... I'll I'll match it. And we are often tempted to do the same. Even though Jesus has told us, turn the other cheek. And I think this is in particular that context of persecution. Peter, this disciple, slept through the prayer meeting. He slept through the sermon on himself. And so when this moment comes, he's not prepared. What he doesn't realize is that though he thinks he is defending Jesus, guess what? He's actually fighting against the will of God here. And so I imagine Jesus in some sense, uh, you know, you can imagine Jesus maybe being the mob grabbing Jesus, seizing him, and he's in the crowd and Peter takes his sword and he gets the servant's ear and Jesus says, put your sword in its place. Hold on, men. Put your sword in its place. Matthew doesn't tell us what Jesus does. John does, that he put his hand on the Malchus's head and heals him. But he tells him, put your sword back in its place. And what are we learning here? When persecution comes, we aren't to resist. Why? Why? Why shouldn't we fight back? When persecution comes. Well, Jesus begins to tell us. He gives three answers, and this is actually the main dialogue in this text to help us see we're Peter, we, and Jesus is talking to us. And he says to Peter in verse 52, put your sword back into its place. Why? For, here's the reason why, number one, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus says, you live like that, you'll die like that. And I mean, just think about this scenario. At best, there's 11 guys with swords versus the great crowd. But we know elsewhere that it seemed that they only had two swords with them. Somebody had a sword, Peter was one of them, and somebody else had one. You aren't getting very far. <laughs> you, you take up that battle, they got swords and clubs you will lose. So just on a practical level, you're going to just, you're going to die the way you are hacking at people. You'll be hacked. You'll die the same way. Second, Jesus says, I don't need your help. You see that there? 
Look at verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was a a, a Roman battalion group of 6,000 soldiers. 72,000 angels. I could just summon at this moment and you think you're going to help me? (laughs) You and your little puny sword? And Jesus is reminding us here that he's in control. He's the Lord of all. And that when suffering comes, he does have the ability to put it away. When persecution comes, he does have the ability to to end it, but he doesn't always. And you and I don't have the wisdom to know what he's doing and when to stop it. Sometimes our Lord lets his saints suffer. Often that is the case. And sometimes he remarkably rescues them. I think about the book of Acts. James is killed. Peter gets remarkably released out of prison. What gifts? Why the one, not the other? Let the Lord be the determiner of those things. Problem for us, I want to be helpful here, nuanced here. I think particularly the challenge for us is that we've conflated our role of U.S. citizen and our identity with Christ and that we have no category for this. We have no category. We think at all times and all places, I have the right to draw my sword. And Jesus says, there's counts when you don't, when you will fight against his will. There is a place for the sword. We know in Scripture that that the government has been entrusted with the sword. Police, our military, there is is a place in this fallen world for the sword. I, I think implied here, notice Jesus doesn't say get rid of your sword. He doesn't say hand it over. Don't want to read too much into it, but put it in its place. Put it back into its place. Elsewhere, we know that when the disciples are going out, they're, they're gathering. He says, when you go, you need to gather all these things. And, and two of them said, we got two swords. He says, that's enough. He doesn't rebuke them for having them. And it seems to imply that there is some level of self-defense that is, that is allowed, that is just reasonable. But I think there is something different between uh, the, 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 the robber who you come on the way and the organized persecution that's coming at you. There's a difference. There's a difference in the one who might break in your home to steal your stuff and kill you that you want to defend yourself against. And if the government says Christianity is outlawed and we're coming and if you have a Bible, we're going to take it. There's a different response. And and there's too much to go into. And here's what I want to encourage you. Do you have a category for this? I'm not eliminating all the other things, places for the sword, but do you have one where you would lay down your sword? Do you have a category for it? Because what Jesus is showing us is that when persecution is here, that turning other cheek, walking two miles, giving them your cloak as well, has a purpose, has a response. It must mean something. And it's in the context, I believe, of persecution. And we follow the footsteps of Jesus, who, as Isaiah tells us, and I think, uh, though Jesus never mentions here the, the actual scriptures, but he is alluding to the will of God that has been revealed throughout the scriptures that the Messiah must suffer. And guess what? We're the people of the Messiah, and we suffer with him. And so just as Jesus, who was oppressed and he was afflicted, Isaiah tells us, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We will watch him the whole way, watch injustice after injustice occur, properly beaten, mistreated, and he opens not his mouth one time. He never retaliates. Jesus shows us how to face unjust evil against us as followers of him. That's what he's showing us. 
No, we look at this and we say, this is crazy talk. We'll certainly die. I know. That's the piece that we just don't get. You will die, most of you, when persecution like this comes. I think about our friends who are enduring Muslim persecution as we speak. We've been watching the news. We know what's coming. And there's lots of variables, so I don't want to oversimplify it. But what would we do if we got a note, a letter, a notification? Taliban is now the controlling government, and they are going to kill any Christians. I've tried to think about this. What would we do? How would I lead us? What, what would be the scenario? Certainly, I think we'd, like many, run to the hills. We'd hide. We'd try to find some way to go underground. We're not going to be stupid and just kind of, well, we're going to have our services outside and show you. You know, we're not doing that. We're going to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We're going to do everything we can to not draw any attention to ourselves as we seek to worship. But what do we do? How do I lead the day that we don't expect? And they're there. The mob comes. Well, I've trained us to stockpile our weapons behind the baptistry because we're going to fight and we're going to go to war. No. I'm not saying they're in a place for that. I'm sure we'd pray that government, somebody would come, that the proper officials are, there's a tussle here, that, that, but that's a, a different category. But for us as believers, what is this going to look like? And I might go to a text like this and say, we must prepare to suffer. And if need be, die. And that's because it's God's will that his church suffer. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 53. You don't think I can call a legion of angels? Verse 54, but then how should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Jesus is able to not retaliate. Why? Because he's convinced of the Father's will as it's revealed in the scriptures, as he's communed with him in prayer. He's convinced that this cup of judgment will not pass, and so too we must be convinced that it is God's will that we who are in Christ will suffer too. Most of us are, are really fascinated by the, the book of Revelation, trying to find things that aren't there. But you know what the purpose of the book of Revelation is? To prepare his church to suffer. Let me just draw your attention to a couple of these. Revelation chapter 6, I think I've got it up on the screen. We have here the, a picture of the saints under the altar that have been slaughtered, and, and, and they represent the persecuted church crying out to God, and they cry out, and they say, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Seems like a reasonable prayer. How long are you going to allow this to happen? Because we know that you could send a legion of angels to rescue us and put this to an end. How long, Lord? What, what could you possibly be doing if it may be possible to let this cup pass? But not my will be done, but your will be done. And what does he say to them? Rest a little longer until the number of your fellow servants and your brothers should be complete who are to be killed as you yourselves have been. You know, that's probably nobody's life verse here, probably. <laughs> what does he remind us? It's my will that you suffer, and I've got purposes. Why don't you go to another one? Revelation 13. Revelation 13 speaks of a beast that rises out of the sea and illustrates in vivid form of, 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 of the government, a, a godless government led by Antichrist who comes and, and persecutes the church. And there's this little hymn, if you will, in verse 10. It says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us. Why? 
here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Do you believe that? Might need to pray, your will be done, not my will be done. I certainly do. I don't like that verse. Scripture is filled with militant language, isn't it? Fight the good fight of the faith, the good soldiers we want to be. We even teach our songs, I'm in the army of the Lord. You know, we, we, we get those themes. But it's, those themes are never introduced to us as Christians to take up violence and aggression against other people. Where's the aggression? Where's the, the, the violent nature of it? It's actually to fight against the sin that wages war against your own soul to combat false ideas, but we're always reminded that our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not in flesh and blood. What, how do we conquer? Certainly we want to conquer. Certainly we want to prevail. How do we beat this evil that comes? Well, Revelation 12, 11 tells us that we conquer the dragon, the evil one, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, loving not our lives even unto death. This is why Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away. It's not how we conquer. It's not how the mission moves forward. Such a posture towards persecution isn't going to happen in a moment for us, right? Some of you are struggling. You're like, I don't like any of this. I, there must be, Chase is a crazy guy. I'm getting out of here. Man, I'm not, he's going to lead us to certain death if anything troublesome happens here. I pray, as I'm praying for my own soul, that if the day comes, we would be ready. But we must now prepare, having the mind of Christ teach us, help us see these things. How, how does this work? What are the categories? And, and how do I have a category? When does this apply? There's a lot to wrestle with here. So that when the day of trouble does come, we can face persecution with confidence. Though we may die, we can be confident that we are walking in the will of the Lord. Therefore, we must lean on our Savior and not on our own understanding, right? Thirdly, lean on your Savior. It's what the disciples, matter of fact, do not do in this text, right? Peter's resistance to the persecution is futile. Peace out. We're, we're gone. That's what the disciples do, right? Boom. Last verse. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They weren't ready. We're out. And so if we don't want to abandon Jesus in the moment of suffering and testing and trial and persecution, then what's the opposite of that? We want to lean on him, rest on him. We learn here, as Jesus now addresses the mob, that their arrest of him, it's all in accordance to God's will, God's plan. Their hour has now come, but it wasn't going to happen at any other time. Jesus, with such confidence, tells them, Verse 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Haven't you seen me day by day in the temple all week just teaching, and you didn't do anything, did you? And it's kind of a, a bit of saying, it's because you couldn't do it then. You had other pressures, even popular opinion it may be, as we know that they were concerned about, but nevertheless, now is your moment, and and no other time was going to be your moment. He says, verse 56, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. All those texts that speak of the suffering Messiah, the king who would come and die, the one who would be crushed for the iniquities of his people, the one who would be betrayed, all, all the texts that anticipated in David as his own members of his own household turn against him, they find their culmination in Christ. And we see that it was the will of God that the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer would suffer and die. But we look back to this text and we do get some answers. Why was it the will of the Father to crush him? Why would it have been tragic if Peter's way had won? There'd be no redemption for us. 
There'd be no victory over sin. No resurrection of the dead. Death would still win. Death would still prevail. It's through the suffering of the Messiah that God would bring life to the world. God gets glory, my friends, by bringing his salvation to his people through suffering. That's what we see in the cross. And we want to shape our lives. It's not just a truth that we believe. Okay, I believe that Jesus died and rose and, hey, thanks for the ticket out of hell. No, actually, it's, and I follow you down that path. And I see in you what is going to characterize my life in some manner, but I can look that even if I myself were to be crucified and betrayed just as you, that I can look back and see the Father's victory. That's how we conquered the evil one, right? By not loving our lives even to death. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. No, 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 no. You will not, you will not prevail and get me to turn away from my Lord and Savior. I'm reminded of the suffering of Jim Elliot. You know Jim Elliot, missionary to Ecuador. He and his wife, Elizabeth, moved there with several other families to take the gospel to an unreached people group the Oka's tribe in Ecuador. Story tells us that Jim and his crew of missionary friends, they had many interactions with the tribe. They had been planning, they had been making drops, trying to, to, to communicate that they are coming in, in peace, they are not here to harm them. And it seems it is which they had some friendly interactions with some of the, the members of the tribe and but it was one day that while they were interacting with some that a, a group of six to ten men came out with spears and killed them, took their lives. Elizabeth, Jim's wife, recounts the day before they went, this last trip. And they knew the danger, they knew what was facing them, and Elizabeth said, if they attack, are you going to use your guns? To which Jim said, no. She said, why? She writes, she said, Jim responded, we will not, because we are ready for heaven, but they are not. It's a bigger mission. Most of us are playing on, on this plane, and he was playing on this one. Bigger mission. Most of us want to fight the battles that don't matter. He's only fighting the battle that did. And if you know much about the story, the whole crew dies. They don't use their weapons, they die. But it opened up the door for the next team to come in, including Elizabeth herself and her children. The story goes that those men who killed them came to faith in Christ. Just like his Savior, Jim, died for another. We even see as we'll get to the cross that Jesus dies. And through that, through his posture, through his laying down his life, there's one soldier who, it clicks. Surely this was the Son of God. And so it will be for us, my friends. And there are stories you, you hear, that's just one. You can go to missionary accounts where people have beaten and, and just taken it and let, the, let them kill them. And it is through that, that, that torture and that suffering as if they watch the saints convinced of the will of God that they have themselves seen that truly your Jesus is who he says he is. a letter written to his family, Jim wrote, remember, you're immortal until your work is done. Man, what confidence. What confidence. And you can only have this kind of confidence if you've spent much time with the Savior, can you? And I pray for myself, I pray for my family, I pray for you, that the Lord would grow us in our time. We're probably not ready for this. I'm not. <laughs> but may we be if it be his will. 
that we would be convinced of his will like this. Jesus is convinced that it's the Father's will that they die, that he dies, and this is exactly what he tells the, the crowds. I was untouchable until now. <laughs> Jesus is confident of the will of God in suffering, even now with persecution. The disciples, they weren't ready, were they? Then all the disciples left him and fled. If we're not confident in God's purposes in suffering, his purposes in persecution, we'll, we'll fight it, won't we? <laughs> and if we can't fight it and win, we'll, we'll flee. <laughs> we'll check out, right? Where's that eject button? I'm out. But when we look to Jesus, my friends, we look in this text, and as we're going to continue to go down the road to the cross... We see God's will and suffering, and we know as we look back to what we do see, we do know that, that through the greatest atrocity, the greatest act of persecution that could ever be known, God was accomplishing his kingdom purposes through it, and so he's doing it now. And when we're confident of God's will, guess what, my friends? We can say along with Jesus, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we do wrestle with this text. As I'm sure for most in this room, they, they're like me, in every fiber of my being, my bone doesn't want to do this. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Grow us, sustain us. Make us confident in your will. May we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may we pray to that end and walk out of here in confidence this week that, that you've called us to suffer well, knowing that our labor and our suffering and if need be, even our lives are not given in vain because we can look back to Jesus and if it wasn't through the cross, we would have no resurrection. And without the resurrection, we would have no redeemer. And we would be dead in our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for following the Father's will. And so we pray these things in your name, to this end in ourselves. Amen.